You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. So you'll remember um, Tom has taken us through a series in uh, Philippians. Um, he spoke last week as, as well, I know, sorry that I wasn't here and couldn't hear it, but I'm sure it was a great blessing to everyone as well. Mainly in October, we've been looking at how the church in Philippi came to be a church, um, because Philippi, of course, was a Roman colony. And remember a few weeks ago, I told you about the start of the church in Lydia's house, and Andrew spoke about the slave girl whose deliverance brought great repercussions for Paul and Silas. And now we're going to pick up the last section of this chapter about the start of the church in Philippi. So turn with me, please, to Acts 16, and we're going to read from verse 25 and up into um, verse 34. That's just to begin with. Um, Remember that Andrew left Paul and Silas in prison. They have been severely flogged and now they're in an inner cell so that there's no chance at all of them escaping. And just to make absolutely certain, their feet are in stocks as well. This jailer's taking no chances. So let's read from verse 25 up until 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. It's an action-packed thriller, isn't it? I was glad we sang that last song, I'm No Longer a Slave. You know, he'd set the slave girl free and here they were, bound up in chains. Um, but that didn't last for too long. Roger Campbell has said, wherever Paul went, he had either a revival or a riot. Strange that his revivals, <coughs> sorry, strange that his revivals were sometimes in prison and his riots in the temple. Or is it strange? In this text, he had both. And that's definitely true, but it was at a great cost for him and his traveling companions. And this story's no exception. It's interesting, I thought, that only Paul and Silas ended up beaten and imprisoned because there was other th others there as well. There was at least Luke and Timothy, but no doubt it was the ringleaders who were subject to imprisonment. 
So Tom, you better watch out because you're definitely the ringleader here. You'll be very glad we don't live in Paul's day. But here's Paul and Silas. They've been flogged, they've been whipped, they've been, they're bleeding, they're in great pain. Their feet are in stocks so that they can't stretch their legs. They can't lean against anything because their backs are, are, are shredded in the inner cell. So even if they were able to move physically, there was absolutely no way of escape. And that's the scene. So what do we find that we can learn from this passage of scripture? Because it's there to teach us something important. See, I don't know if you're like me, but when troubles come our way, our instinct is to escape them. We pray earnestly, free us, Lord. And sometimes we should be praying, show me, Lord, what you're teaching me through this trial. And that's a really hard one. And I certainly haven't grasped it yet. But the key to seeing what God is doing is keeping focused on what he's saying to us, what he's asking of us. If Paul and Silas had been just trying to escape, there would have been no prison revival that day. And I believe this section in um, chapter 16, the, the verses that we've read, gives us the ingredients for a prison revival, and it gives it in four points. But I'm just warning you now that there's a fifth point, and I want to bring that at the end. I promise they're all short points this morning. <laughs> um, I know usually I like to have my three. Ian taught me that well. But we've got four this morning. So here's the ingredients for a prison revival. And remember, we're, everyone out there is in a prison. So the first one is, we've got two Christians here in real prayer. Secondly is we've got two Christians with the right attitude. And then we've got two Christians in the right place in the prison. And we've got two Christians with the right message. So first of all, um, we've got two Christians in real prayer. In spite of the fact that their bodies hurt so badly, what were Paul and Silas doing? They were praying. And you know, in lots of ways you could say, well, there was nothing else they could do. I mean, it's, we know that it's often in these darkest times in our lives that we realize there is nowhere else to go, no one else to go to. Only God can do anything about the situation we find ourselves in. There's no answer in human terms. But if you're anything like me, it can be hard to get past the actual circumstance and really focus on what God, who ultimately knows exactly what he's doing. It's why it's great to know that others are praying for us at times like that. And I'm sure the Campbells and the Lindsays are knowing that this morning. So keep using the Connect group to bring requests. It's, it's the place that we come and we can, we can stand together. And even although we've got some people come straight back and say, praying now, you know, that's great. But we're all praying as soon as we see what you've put in and needs prayer. And it was great to see Rachel share this week. And us all to be able to just stop for that minute and pray for Tristan and to hear that things are a good bit better. I don't think I would have blamed Paul and Silas if they had been reflecting even a little bit on the unfairness of what was happening to them. But were they whining and complaining or calling on God for revenge for their enemies? Were they praying to escape 
not a bit of it. They were in real prayer, worshipful prayer, praying and praising. So by the way, if you weren't in the prayer meeting on Wednesday night, wow, you missed a time of worshipful prayer. It was an amazing time. But you know what? It's great because you've got a chance to come to the next one, which is on the fourth Wednesday of every month now. So come along. You'll really be blessed there. When you are in pain, the midnight hour might not be the easiest time to pray like this. It's the darkest hour. But you know what? God delights to work in the dark because darkness has to bow to him. He's in the dark with you, bringing his light. D.L. Moody, the great American evangelist in the 1800s said, Every great work of God's can be traced back to a praying figure. And we know that when we hear about revivals, it can always be traced back to people who were faithful in prayer. We see that in Paul and Silas here. They were praying earnestly. They prayed specifically and believingly. And that's not all that they were doing. Point two, they were two Christians with the right attitude. They were not only praying, they were praising. You know, the praying really wasn't strange. It's not strange that when they're really um, at, 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 the, at the bottom that they're, that they're praying. But singing and praising, now that's a miracle. There was no woe is me, no pity party going on. They were enjoying the presence of God with them in that cell. They were having a sacred concert. God was definitely bringing them songs in the night. You know, Job had a really hard time with, with his friends when he was at rock bottom. They're saying to him, you must be at fault. You must have done something to bring God's wrath upon yourself. Just admit it. And Elihu says this in, in Job 35 and 10, no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? It's a really difficult book, Job, to understand. And it kills me that it's called a wisdom book. <laughs> the scholars all call it that. But even, um, but even I understand the miraculous ways that praise lifts us beyond circumstances and plants us firmly in the heavenlies. It's an amazing thing that happens when we really praise God. Psalm 32 and 8 is a mascal of the sons of Korah, not one of David's psalms, although he would echo the sentiment. It says, by day the Lord directs his love. Well, that's great. But he goes on, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, any fool can sing in the day. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but the skilled singer is the one who can sing where there's not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They're not in the power of men. Paul and Silas knew the truth of this. They could have been wallowing in self-pity and feeling the unfairness of it all about what had happened to them because, you know, they had done everything that they were supposed to do. They'd obeyed the Macedonian call. They'd been winning souls. They'd been prayerful. They'd been sensitive to the needs of the possessed slave girl and they'd released her. They'd done everything that God had directed. 
They'd honoured him at every turn, but still trouble came. Oh, I bet that resonates with you this morning. You know, it's sometimes when we feel that we've been doing everything God is telling us to do, that suddenly we're at rock bottom. But nevertheless, they praised God. That's a real lesson for us. Prayer and praise come together as powerful weapons. Go read 2 Chronicles 20. You'll get such blessing from reading how God defeated the armies, three armies together, Ammon, Moab, and Mount Zer. How did he do it? By appointing men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Verse 21, that's the verse. By appointing men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. It was an amazing story. The other three armies pretty much turned on each other so that when the Israelite army came to look at the place where the invading armies had come to fight, all they saw was dead bodies. That's the way to fight our battles. Selwyn Hughes makes a great point about praise when he says, it's an expression in the soul of a firm belief that God is in control. The child of God knows that nothing can work successfully against him so long as he believes God. And that's where Paul and Silas were, where they'd come to in their experience. They'd focused on God's power instead of on the problem. They believed God would deliver them and that he would do it his way, any way he chose. They identified with Jesus in what was going on, the darkness, the stalks, the stripes, They'd seen what God had done through Jesus. They were willing to trust God that he was working out his plans. I can imagine them singing Michael W. Smith's song there in the prison cell. This is how I fight my battles. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you, Lord. That's the value and the power of praise. Even when things seem to be going completely wrong, He's still the God of miracles, and he can, and he will, and he does, we know that, surround you, even when you can't see what it is that's going on. So hold on, no matter what you're going through, hold on and praise him. But that's not the end of story, of course. We've got two Christians praying and praising. And the next part is we've got number three. We have two Christians who are in the right place. Oh wait, that's a prison cell. But yes, those two Christians are at the center of God's plan. Who said the Christian road was easy? God responded to their prayers and their praise by sending an earthquake, which shook the foundations of the prison, opening all the doors, loosening all the stocks, loosening all the chains, and suddenly there was that opportunity to escape. But they didn't. They could have fled to freedom, but instead, they stayed put. There were other prisoners with them. And I've often wondered, why did they not just make a break for freedom? But I like what Warren Wearsby says about them not trying to escape. He says, for one thing, Paul immediately took command. And no doubt the fear of God was upon those pagan men. 
these prisoners must have realized there was something very special about these two Jewish preachers. It seems Paul's focus at the time was on that guard. He knows God wants to deal with this man, and who knows what this, led, what this would lead to in the future. This man is almost certainly a retired army veteran. Remember the last time I spoke about how such Romans could be persuaded to go and live in a Roman colony so that it stayed Roman? Well, one perk was they paid no taxes. That would be good, wouldn't it? No taxes to pay. But that didn't mean that they didn't have to do their jobs well. They had to obey the rules. And it was Roman law that if a prison guard allowed a prisoner to escape, their punishment would become the guard's punishment. So Paul and Silas, remember, weren't the only prisoners in that cell. There was other prisoners there, and they were likely, they were in the inner cell as well, so they were likely prisoners that were awaiting execution. And this guard knew that his fate was going to be that if they all escaped. Now, a hard-hearted person seeking vengeance wouldn't have cared about the guard at all, but that wasn't these two. They knew the guard was a prisoner, and they believed the, the, the God who had sent his son to set the prisoner free. Paul would not, also, would not also only save the man's life, but he would point him to eternal life in Jesus Christ. All the prisoners are still there. Now that could only be a miracle. No wonder he cries out, what must I do to be saved? And of course, Paul has the answers. Because these two Christians in the middle of the storm, in human terms, were in the right place. When we're in the storm, we just want to be out of it, don't we? I hate when things all seem to be going wrong. But sometimes that's where we are for a particular reason. And God is always, no matter how difficult it is to see him, he's always there with us. It's really, really important that we keep focused on him. We're here whenever we can be with family praying and praising together. Hasn't it been an amazing time of worship and being in God's presence this morning? That we stay together, that we use the connect group, that we we're separate from the world in, in, in spiritual terms, and that we're not being misled by the devil. He hates when we're together. He hates it. We're far more dangerous together. On our own, we're much more vulnerable, much easier for him to pick off. But when we're here together and we know we've got each other's backs, that we're family, then it's an amazing, amazing thing because Satan can't get to us in the same way at all. You know, the musketeers had that saying, and their saying's legendary, isn't it? All for one and one for all. But, you know, but for kingdom building, it's spot on. Stay focused on the one who knows exactly what he's doing and why. And know that we're all in it together. Back to these two Christians. And number four, they were two Christians with the right message. The greatest question anyone will ever ask is this jailer's question. What must I do to be saved? And the only answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, there was no other answer then and there's no other answer now. It's the same for us today as it was for the jailer in Philippi. No one else can free you from your sin, from your guilt, from all the mess-ups of your life. 
No one else, no one else wants to. He never rejects anyone, no matter how bad, how messed up, how sinful. And he's here, and he wants you to find freedom today. So just let him in. If you need help to do that, please just come and speak to one of the leaders here. He doesn't make it complicated, but we'd love to help you find him if you need that. The jailer found him, and so did his family. It's my imagination only because it doesn't actually say it, but I really like to think that these other prisoners met Jesus that day too. I'll have to wait for eternity to find that one out. But I'm patient. I'm sure that's why we think of this passage as being prison revival. I'm patient. I can wait. But there's one final point that I want to leave with you about this church in Philippi, and it's this. And this is my number five point. The gospel has unifying power. John Stott, who was a theologian noted as the leader of the worldwide evangelical movement, he died in 2011. And in his commentary on the book of Acts, I found it a great help when I was just studying for this preach. It talks about how different the, different the individuals spoken about in Acts 16 were. Remember back, there was the businesswoman, the very successful businesswoman, Lydia. And then there was a slave girl. We don't even know her name. And finally, there's this Roman jailer. They had different national origins. None of them were Jewish. Lydia was the Asian immigrant. The slave girl was most likely native to Greece, but there were so many slaves being imported then that she could have been from anywhere. And then there's the Roman guard. They were totally different socially as well. You've got the, so, the successful, wealthy businesswoman, the slave girl with nothing to her name, and the Roman, paying no tax, army career behind him with his responsible job. The woman at opposite ends of the spectrum with the man in the middle of them. Does it remind you of Paul speaking to another group of Christians in Galatia? And in Galatians 3 and 28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. They were different nationally, socially, but they had very different, uh, differing needs. Remember, Lydia was searching, maybe disenchanted about her nation's gods and the idolatry, needing to know more about the Judaism she thought gave more answers. She could be said to have an intellectual need. Remember, as she listened, the Lord opened her mind to believe. The slave girl had a psychological need. Yes, she had an evil spirit which needed to be cast out. But, you know, that would have terrible psychological consequences. She'd lost her identity. She'd lost her individuality. She was not only possessed by the spirit who, that was possessed, sorry, she not, not only belonged to the spirit that possessed her, but she belonged to those slave masters. She was in double bondage until Christ came and set her free, and she became an integrated person once more. The jailer, I think, had a moral need. His conscience had been aroused to some extent when he cried out, what must I do to be saved? You know, we're in a, a, a totally different situation here in Bowness in 2021. But people's needs haven't changed that much. 
but Jesus Christ can meet the needs and fulfill our aspirations to be a people of God, his kingdom on earth. I love to observe in Philippi both the universal appeal of the gospel and its unifying effect on those who meet him. So diverse socially, culturally, personally, but finding that oneness in Christ Jesus. This is the Philippian church. They get it wrong sometimes, and we'll see that as Tom goes further into the book of Philippians. You know what? They're human. Nevertheless, these people all belong to one fellowship in Christ and the church and the kingdom of God, and it began to grow and develop through them. And I love the very final verse of Acts 16 because it says, after Paul and Silas came out of prison, there's another preach in there, which we're not going to do just now, but we don't have time to go into it this morning. After they came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. That's verse 40. I don't know how many nationalities are represented in Riverview now, but I love that there's a lot. And you know what? There's space for so many more. I don't know how diverse we are socially. I don't know how diverse and, and different we are um, in, in the things that we do in work and, and, um, and in retirement as well. But I do know that we all have needs and that we're all finding them met in the Saviour who saves and delivers and binds together and builds kingdom without favourites just because he loves us and calls us to show the world how the kingdom brings unity and makes a place for everyone to call home. I'm so glad to do church with you. We are family. So... Riverview, let's just shine Jesus out to the world. There are so many out there who need to find him too. Lord, bring revival. Bring revival. Do it again through us as people see kingdom being built here. And know what? There's plenty of space in here for everyone who needs to come. So Lord bless you.